or the people that he's put in our lives to build us up and to model Christ for us. So thank you for being available for that here, and, and may God continue to do that in our midst. Uh, because Exodus is on the bulletin cover, we're going to talk about Exodus. So um, why are we going to study Exodus? Well, there's some good reasons for that. One is we learn a lot about God. We need to know more about God. And uh, so it, Exodus will probably expand our categories about who we think God is. Exodus also will help us to understand God's redemption better, so how God redeems us. Exodus is a good place to gain a deeper understanding of God's mission, so how God's working in the world. And uh, we also need to know how to live distinctively as God's people, and so Exodus does that very well. I do need to give you a warning. Uh, Today's message is PG-13 at least, and we talk about some pretty hard things, so I think uh, most of the children are, are out of the room or, or in their classrooms, so you may not want to have them here if they're still here. And so just giving you a fair heads up that we're talking about some pretty raw things. Um, this isn't your children's Bible version of, of Exodus. So uh, so let, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We need your truth built into our lives. We need your spirit to teach us and to cause your word to be effective in us. Help me to speak truly about your word, not to exaggerate the hard things that are there, but to just present them. Uh, And may we be encouraged at how great you are in the midst of a broken world. So teach us these things. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is going on in Exodus? Well, uh, Exodus is about God freeing his people, Israel Israel to be his people. And so Israel had been chosen by God to be his people, but they, they hadn't yet been really formed to be his people. So God is forming them to be his people. God delivers and dwells with his people. So the whole uh, book of Exodus is about God delivering his people and, and how he comes to dwell with them. And God forms his people into a nation as he begins to fulfill his promise in spite of their sin. So God, God's all about advancing his promise in spite of us, in spite of our sin. So uh, Exodus 6, 7, I think I have that up on the screen. And if you have your Bible with you today, just keep that handy because we've got a lot of text to cover and, and we're not putting all of it up there. So you'll just want to keep your, your phone or your Bible handy. Uh, if you have a phone and you haven't yet gotten a, a Bible version, you can download you version and, and you can access Bible versions there. So Exodus 6, 7 says, I will take you to be my people. This is God talking through Moses to Israel. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So that's what's happening in Exodus. So we're going to read uh, from the first 14 verses of Exodus. And as we get that up on the screen... Uh, one word that's not there at the beginning of verse 1, and it's not there in most of the translations, is the word and. So the word and is there. You say, wow, that's deep, Pastor Gary. That's amazing. Does it get any more interesting after this? Probably not, but but and is an important word. And the reason and is there is because it, it continues to follow right on from Genesis. It just picks up where Genesis left off and, and it, to, to carry over from Genesis into. So what happened in Genesis? So I'm going to speed through Genesis. God created the heavens and the earth. He created the first people. 
He placed them in a garden temple called Eden. He blessed them and told them to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. But they rebelled, and uh, they brought sin and death upon all all their descendants, upon themselves and all their descendants. Now, if you know the story, you know that there was a talking snake that deceived Eve, deceived the woman. And uh, as, we, as we see that unfold in Scripture, we, we know that the snake was Satan, the devil in disguise, uh, doing his dirty work. And what God immediately did, even though Adam and Eve were not really confessing their sin, they weren't taking ownership of it, and but, but God immediately uh, mercifully says, I, I'm gonna set, I'm, I, I've got a promise for you. I promise, well, number one, there's going to be constant hostility between your offspring and the serpent's offspring. So there's going to be these two warring parties throughout history of the world. They're going to culminate in the final battle with Christ and, and Satan. And because of that, um, I'm, I promise that the, the, the seed of the, sat- of, of, the de- of the snake is going to bruise your heel, and he's going, he's going to bruise your head. So talking about the battle uh, between the, the offspring of the snake and the offspring of the woman, there's going to be an ultimate destruction of evil. So God's going to remove the cause of sin, and he's going to destroy evil. So he promises that. So keep that in mind, the, the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the, of the woman. So as their descendants multiply, uh, God's grieved at, at their sinfulness. So he, it gets so bad, he decides to flood the earth and wipe everybody out except for eight people, Noah and his family, and animals. So he preserves them on an ark, and it still is bad after that. And uh, they, they rebel again, and they build a tower that's an act of rebellion, and God uh, stops him at that, and he chooses out of the nations that spread out from the Tower of Babel, he chooses a man named Abram, who later he names Abraham. And so he, he says to Abraham, go to a land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham's wife, Sarah, was unable to bear children. Even though they were very old, God promises that he's going to multiply their offspring to be as numerous as the sand on the seashore and as the stars in the the heavens. So he promises them that. And at last, God miraculously enables them to have a son. So they have this miracle child, Isaac, and Isaac has a son named Jacob. And God later changes his name, gives him the additional name of Israel. Jacob has 12 sons, and his favorite son is Joseph. His brothers resented Joseph, so they they did what all jealous brothers do. They sell him into slavery. And uh, so the slave traders take him to Egypt. Joseph has skills, including the ability to interpret dreams. So uh, Pharaoh had some perplexing dreams, Pharaoh the leader of Egypt. And Joseph interprets them, and he, he predicts that after seven years, there's going to be seven years of famine. So seven good years of plenty of food and seven years of famine. And Pharaoh says, um, well, uh, Joseph says, you need a plan to, 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 to save up for that. And Pharaoh says, great, you be vice president, and you're in. So Joseph says, okay, I'll do it. And he does. And the famine hits Canaan as well as, as, uh, as where Joseph's family lives, as well as Egypt. So his brothers hear in Egypt that, that Egypt has grain, and so they, they leave Canaan, where Joseph's brothers are living, and they come to Egypt to buy grain at Costco. Yeah, they had, they had them back then. They don't recognize that they're dealing with Joseph, so at, at last he reveals his identity, and he promises he won't kill them for, for um, betraying him. 
And he tells them to um, go get Jacob and family and come and live in Egypt. And now you stand. We're going to read the scripture. We're going to read this passage. Stand. Reading of God's word. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too, too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens, they built for, for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. You may be seated. So what's happening in those first six verses is is he's just uh, repeating what what you already knew if you were reading Genesis that um, the twelve sons of Israel and their whole family, which was seventy people, moved to Egypt, and then Joseph dies and all his brothers die and all that generation dies. So he he covers a, a pretty big swath of time and just says they they moved there, they died, and now we're into a subsequent generation. And uh, actually the the the, the the titles of the books of, of the Bible in the Old Testament are all in Hebrew, and but the Hebrew words are not the English equivalents. So the name of the book in in um, Exodus in Hebrew is not the Hebrew word for Exodus, but it's these are the names. That's the name of the book. These are the names. So the, that's what they do in in the Old Testament books. They they give it the title of the first phrase or the first word in the book. So. Exodus is a little more catchy than these are the names, but just so you know that. So verse 7, people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. So the, the language of this verse ties with the creation mandate God gave to the first people. He, he had commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So God is taking Israel to do what um, Adam and Eve were originally supposed to do, to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. They're increasing and, and multiplying. And he also had promised to Abraham that he was going to multiply his offspring like the, the sand of the seashore and the stars in the heavens. So he's fulfilling that promise as well. He's, he's fulfilling the creation mandate. He's, he's fulfilling the promise that he made to Abraham. So it says they increased greatly, and, and that could also be translated they swarmed. So Israelites were swarming in Egypt. And um, it says they grew very, very, very strong. They grew very mighty. The faithfulness of God regarding his promises to, the, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob assures the people of God of all ages that the Lord continues to be faithful to his covenantal promises. So death doesn't stop him. Um, the, the, the death of the first generation doesn't stop him. And 
he, he continues to fulfill his covenant to, across the ages, across hundreds of years and thousands of years later, as he's fulfilling his promises to us in Christ. So history or famine or oppression or death do not defeat the plans and purposes of God. God's promise continues to go forward. So Moses passes over the, uh, the first several generations. We don't know exactly where this takes place, but from verses 1 to 7, it could be like a couple hundred years, maybe 300 years later, uh, and without much comment. So it doesn't seem like much is going on. And, um, but not as if these silent years were unimportant. God was actively fulfilling his promise to multiply Israel like the stars and like the sand. And you may be going through a time in which you feel like God isn't really doing much in your life. Like you've been going for months or years, and it just seems like there's just not a whole lot happening. God's really not, doesn't seem to be very active in your life. But beyond what you know, he may be, he may be expanding in your growth like you don't understand, like you can't see. So God is good for doing that. He, he, he's not bound by our awareness of how he's working. And then uh, looking at verses 8 through 11, so just get, get, uh, I'll be talking from verses 8 through 11 if you're following through in your Bibles. Uh, there's another king that doesn't, over Egypt, who does not know Joseph. So it probably doesn't mean he doesn't know anything that, about Joseph's existence, but he, he, he probably had some historical knowledge of Joseph, but he didn't have any regard for him as one who had done so much good for the people. He sees him through revisionist history. He just doesn't think Joseph, he, he blanks out that Joseph did good for Egypt, and he's, he's, he's just forgotten that. He chooses to forget all that. Because now he only sees Joseph's people as a threat. So he calls them the people of Israel. They're no longer just a group of immigrants. He is saying they are now a powerful people with, within our nation. There are too many of them. They're too mighty for us, for the safety of the Egyptian people and for the good of our economy. We need to deal shrewdly. We need to deal wisely with them before they multiply even more and join our enemies and fight against us and escape or take over. From this time forward, it's Egypt first. Egypt first. So they tightened up the employment laws afflicted the Israelites with heavy burdens and had them build store cities, probably a military um, outposts. God had told Abraham some 600 years, hundreds of years ago, we see this in Genesis 15, 13. I think I have that on the screen. The Lord had told Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So God has promised to multiply Israel, and Pharaoh's, Pharaoh implements a shrewd plan to minimize Israel. So God's going to multiply Israel. Pharaoh thinks, we've got to minimize Israel. Whose plan is going to succeed? Well, from a worldly perspective, it looks like Pharaoh's plan is going to work because he's, they're, they're putting the screws down on them. They're, they're tightening up the, their lifestyle. How can God multiply his, his people when they're being afflicted with heavy burdens? How can Christ's church multiply when they're being persecuted? How can your faith grow stronger when you're suffering? Doesn't God know that he can't bless your life when you have hardships going on? Does God know what he's doing? 
Well, we see in, in verses 12 through 14 that um, Pharaoh's policy had the opposite effect. He had intended population control. The policy led to further population explosion of the Hebrews. They were spreading out beyond where they had been before in Goshen. So God's promise and wisdom overrides Pharaoh's policy and wisdom. God's promise overrides Pharaoh's policy. God's promise always is able to outdo the policies of the world. Pharaoh doesn't. Pharaoh thinks his, his issue is just with the Israelites, but Pharaoh doesn't recognize his, his problem is God. And if God is your problem, you've got problems. And now, as, Israel, as the Israelites' population kept increasing in spite of the Egyptians' efforts to restrict their growth, anxiety and distress were increasing among the Egyptians. I mean, pills were flying off the shelves. They're just stressed out. They're freaking out. They developed a, a, a fear mixed with sickening dread. That's what that word means. They, they dreaded Israel. They, it was a sickening dread, like, oh, no, we, how are we going to handle this? A covenant blessing to God's people can turn into a curse for the enemies of his people. The Egyptians didn't know what else to do but, but to deal with them ruthlessly. So that's what Moses writes here. Ruthlessly, harshly, brutally make them work as slaves. They, might, they made their lives bitter with hard service, both in brickwork and, and in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So that, that word shows up a lot. It's translated. It's the same root word in all. Work as slaves, work uh, hard service, work as slaves. So that, that word shows up a lot here. And um, God will later often remind Israel, don't treat people like you were treated in Egypt. Don't treat them. Don't make slaves of your own people. Who and how Israel serves is a major theme in, in Exodus. Who and how Israel serves is a major theme in Exodus. The Lord will repeatedly say to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me. Let my people go so that they may serve me. That's the same word. And whether it has a negative connotation of like hard slavery or freed service to the Lord is determined in the context of what the Scripture is saying. So you're, you're going to serve one way or the other. God would free Israel from cruel and crushing service of man to liberating and life-giving service to him. Israel will engage in serving God freely and worship him freely. So we will always inevitably serve something or someone. So it's a good time to reflect on how and who are you serving. And you know that by what are you sacrificing for? What are you devoted to? Who are you serving? Nobody doesn't serve something. Everybody serves something. Double negative. Equals a positive. You're always serving something or someone. Before you can truly serve God, though, you need to let him serve you. God isn't just saying, hey, I want you to serve me, so stand, stand in line. I'm going to give you a list of, of work projects to do for me. No. He has to serve you first because the Son of Man, Jesus, came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So before you can serve the Lord, you've got to let Jesus serve you and give you life and free you from sin's guilt and bondage. 
to become his people. So that's what God's doing for Israel. He's freeing them to be his people. It's relationship first. Become his people first, and then you learn what it means to freely serve him, joyfully serve him. Well, Pharaoh's frustrated because they're still multiplying. Like they, 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 they tighten the employment laws. They, they treat him harshly. They do all this hard stuff. They, they, they make their lives bitter and miserable. But they're still multiplying. So how do you extinguish Israel? How do you get, how do you get rid of them or shrink them down to where you can control them? Well, we see this in verses 15 to 22. And I'll read that to you, verses 15 to 22. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile but you shall let every daughter live. So why are the midwives named when not even Pharaoh is named? Because Pharaoh is a loser and the midwives are heroes. (laughs) By leaving Pharaoh's name out, he's just Moses saying, hey, he doesn't even get mentioned in history, so he's lost. Shifra and Pua... I notice we don't have any of those in our church. We're probably not the only midwives in all of Israel because they're multiplying like crazy. So two midwives would be going nuts trying to go deliver all these babies. So they're probably like midwife heads or leaders, supervisors of midwives at any rate. Pharaoh takes the prerogative of a god to himself and orders the death of the male infants even as they're in the birth process, in order to stop the increase of the Israelites and, and to um, deplete. So he's, he's killing the boy babies because they, they're more likely to join the military and fight against them. So he's, he's, you can leave the, the girls alive but kill the boys. So in this diabolical plot, Pharaoh attacks the most vulnerable social stratum of enslaved Israelites, which, of course, are powerless, defenseless, newborn infants. Now, this should really work. Now, keep in mind, Pharaoh is that generation's seed or offspring of the serpent trying to kill the offspring of the woman. Remember, that the, the original battle set up, going through all, all history, the offspring of the, of the woman versus the offspring of the snake. And the Pharaoh's is the offspring of the snake. But the midwives feared God. The midwives feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. So what does it mean to fear God? Does it mean being afraid of God? I mean, you've read that. You see that it's a lot in Scripture, fearing the Lord. So what does it mean? Well, it does include some being afraid of his judgment or his discipline because even if, he, if you're his child, his discipline hurts. So if you were disciplined, anybody here disciplined as a child? 
So some of you were, so that's why you're still okay people. Because discipline hurts, so you don't look forward to that. It hurts. So there is an element of fear in that, of, of being afraid fear, but, but the bigger meaning of that of word in terms of fearing the Lord is not just being afraid of his, his discipline or his punishment, but it's um, recognizing him as worthy of respect, honor, and obedience, as greater and more deserving of your loyalty than any other authority or power. So the midwives fear God, and they take a pro-life position, even though the official state and religious head of Egypt says, um, it's preferable to kill these boy babies. It's a good thing for the nation to do. It's for our freedom. It's for our power. We'll be a better nation if, if you kill these boy babies. But fear of God, reverence for God, uh, enabled them to stand outside the accepted position di- dictated by Pharaoh. They would not take the innocent human life, even though the state assigned them to take it for the good of the state. So fearing God gave them courage in the face of Whatever Pharaoh might do to them, because he's he's this at this time this is like the most powerful nation on earth, and he's the head. So he got these two midwives standing up to him, and so fear fear of God gave them courage to stand up to him. So, but what it sounds like that that the method of infanticide was was to kill the baby just as it exits the birth canal, because once the child is out of the womb, it doesn't seem like Pharaoh expected expected them to kill it. So that the midwives uh, probably it would be something like this: they they see the baby is being born, they 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 do something to kill it, and then they, they say to the mom, "Oh, I'm so sorry, your baby didn't live." So it's kind of like a secret thing that they were trying to pull off. They weren't being public about it. So because of that, it was likely some years before they realized, uh, before the Egyptians began to say, "Hey, Pharaoh, why are there so many Hebrew baby boys out there in the in the nurseries?" in the daycares, they finally realize they're not dying. So uh, he calls the, the midwives to him and says, why have you let the babies live? Pharaoh's having a midwife crisis. <laughs> You're welcome. That's, yeah. The, the Hebrew women are not wimps. Should I stop now? Well, I'm going to quit, quit while I'm ahead. The Hebrew women are not wimps like the Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwife gets, gets there. That implies that after the child is born, Pharaoh did not expect them to kill the, the baby after it was born. Now, people often assume that they just outright lied. And some people say they were wrong. They should have trusted God and just told them the truth. Or some say, yes, they lied, but, but you're not obligated to, to tell the truth to someone who's just going to do evil. So like if you're in Nazi Germany and you're hiding Jews in your house and the, and the, the SS comes to the door and says, you got any Jews? You, you're obligated to tell them no because they're just going to do evil. So some people think that's what's going on here. Uh, I don't think it's so clear. The scriptures don't make it clear that they're, they're being overtly deceptive necessarily. Um, in fact, I think God gave them a, a, a legitimate thing in terms of the vigor of the of the Hebrew women, that they were really birthing the babies quickly. And it might have been that the, the midwives kind of knew that, and so they, they might have held up the timing a little bit. But I think they were able to tell the truth, sort of, but, but they were recognizing, hey, we can work this so that we don't have to kill the babies, and we can still tell Pharaoh a, a legitimate reason for not killing the babies. 
So Pharaoh bought it, and he, I mean, he probably wouldn't have believed him if it didn't sound believable. So, uh, um, yeah, so, so the, the midwives thwart the evil plan of Pharaoh by fearing and obeying God. God continues to multiply and make his people strong, so it, it doesn't work. They're still multiplying, they're still becoming stronger as a, as a people. Just as he had done before Pharaoh attempted to, to intervene, God continued to multiply his people. The more Pharaoh tried to hinder the, the sons of Israel, the more they multiplied. The fear of, of God, uh, of the Hebrew midwives, wins God's favor toward them, and, and he gives them families. So he blessed them. In our society today, we may not have midwives assigned to take the lives of unborn children. We may not have forced abortions like they had in, in China when they, were, they had their one-child policy. But we do have a state-sanctioned mindset that says if a child is not wanted for any reason, you have the choice to put it to death. Abortion is the unjust taking of innocent human life. Those who are in positions of influence who still perpetuate the falsehood that an unborn baby is not yet a human being are bad, are, are doing harm by, by perpetuating that falsehood. Or they say it is a potential human being, but is not a person with a right to life. Biologically, from conception on, an unborn baby is human. Difference in size doesn't make doesn't make a um, a baby worth killing, because um, a two year old is smaller than a twenty two year old. So you don't kill two year olds just because they're smaller than twenty two year olds. So difference in size is not a reason that a baby in the womb is less developed then a 12-year-old doesn't mean he or she has no right to life. The fact that an unborn baby is in the womb doesn't mean she isn't a person with a right to life. Because if you, if you can kill the baby while it's in the womb, what's the difference when two minutes later it's out of the womb? And because the unborn baby is dependent on the mother, that's not a reason to kill it. Because uh, 12-year-olds are still dependent on their mothers. And we don't kill them for that reason. Humans are made in God's image, whether two weeks after conception, two years old, 22, or 102. It is always wrong to take innocent human life. But when the state or the culture is saying that for the good of the state or your personal choice makes it okay to take innocent human life, it's the fear of God that keeps you from doing that. It's reverence for what he says is right and wrong, that he hates the shedding of innocent blood that keeps us from doing so. Now, some may say, well, you don't understand my hard situation. I'm in a hard, hard situation. There are some horrible situations where there's pregnancy involved that, that make it a crisis. There's no question about that. There are lots of people who want to adopt. 
So rather than taking the life of, of a baby, um, adoption is, is a good option, however hard it is to get there. If you've had an abortion, or if you've persuaded or pressured someone to have an abortion, God has provided a way of forgiveness. And that is through the greatest and ultimate offspring of Israel, Jesus Christ. In the shedding of his innocent blood, his death on the cross, he bore the guilt of all of our sins, including abortion, so that all who trust in him to save them from their sins receive forgiveness. The scriptures don't single out abortion as worse than other sins. But it is one of the sins our culture claims can be right for you if you choose it. But apart from those rare situations where saving the life of the mother means you can't save the life of the unborn baby, abortion is always the unjust taking of innocent human life because that baby is created in God's image. And that doesn't happen at some later stage of development. That just, that's the imprint from the beginning. Well, Pharaoh commands all the people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Pharaoh does away with any secretive aspect to this um, plan to kill the Hebrew baby boys. He commands all Egyptians to join in killing all Israelite newborn boys. The process that began sort of hidden and modestly had escalated in steps to and reached its full-blown expression. It is now an open national policy of large-scale genocide against a particular ethnic group. Now, why the Nile? Throw them in the Nile. Well, it's convenient. The Nile's big. Lots of people live around the Nile. So the babies would just disappear and be swept away. And the Nile was a god. So the, the Nile determines as a god who lives and dies. In the United States, my choice is God. I decide life or death. Ironically, later God will kill large numbers of Egyptian soldiers by drowning them in the Red Sea. The king's decree, his final solution, calling for the drowning of Israelite male children in, in the Nile, truly was a terrifying threat. But it proves within the flow of the Exodus storyline to be a foreshadowing of what the Lord will do to Israel's oppressors. There is no fear of the Lord certainly in Pharaoh, and where there's no fear of the Lord, evil breeds and increases. The final words of Pharaoh have lived in infamy for the last 3,000 years or so. His cruel treatment of the enslaved Israelites failed to eradicate them. We know God wins. He delivers his people despite the attempts of others such as Antiochus Epiphanes, the Greek uh, king, and most recently Adolf Hitler, God has rescued his people, the Jews, his physical descendants of Abraham. As he said, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. 
back in the day, Israel was probably wondering, where is God in all this evil? Where is God? Why didn't he stop this? You may be wondering that too in what is going on in your life. If you're in Christ, he is at work in you for good. He will finally deliver you from evil. Just as he taught us to pray, Jesus taught us to pray, deliver us from evil. God will answer that prayer. Sometimes in this life, always in the next. You may be saying, where's God in all the crazy evil that's going on in the world? Well, he's doing the same thing he was doing in Exodus. He's multiplying his people, not just from Israel, but from every nation. So in 1949, when communists took over China, there was about 800,000 Chinese believers, give or take 100,000. Now there are close to 100 million, go from less than a million to 100 million. They're predicted that they're going to be a larger, they're going to have a greater population of Christians than the United States in a short time. So God's into multiplying his people, and he isn't stopped by policies and, and governments. In fact, he, he seems to thrive on overcoming those odds. He's multiplying his people, not just from Israel, but from every nation, preparing for the final destruction of those who oppose him and for the deliverance of his people from oppression and suffering into the promised new creation where God will dwell with his people. So we see this um, final result of the multiplication of God's people in Revelation 7 where John writes, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, a great multitude multiplying from every nation that no one could could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Let's pray. Father, salvation is yours. You alone can save us from our own sin that we were born with and that we've lived out. And ultimately, you alone can save us from the evil in this world. We're thankful, Father, that we have laws and and law enforcement and and. Things in this world that help restrain evil, but but those are all gifts of you, and ultimately, you don't intend for us just to continue to manage evil. You intend to to destroy it, just like you will do, as we're going to see in Exodus, and deliver your people entirely from it. So thank you, Father, that you first deal with the evil in us through the shed innocent blood of your son Jesus, paying completely the price of our sin and guilt and liberating us to have life in him and to serve you. Father, we've talked about hard things. We've talked about putting to death babies, and we've talked about what's going on in our own nation with abortion. And these are hard things, and these are hurtful things. We've all experienced some of these things in people we know or our own lives. And we need the hope the scriptures offer. We need to, as as your word deals with the realities of life, we know we don't do ourselves any favor by not 
hearing what your word has to say about them. But we ask, Father, for, the, for your spirit to work in us to, to keep us encouraged and hopeful, continuing to encourage one another, growing together in Christ, overcoming the bondages of our past and growing more and more into the freedom we have in Jesus. We, we wish we would have it completely in this life. We don't. We, we know that in our full deliverance when Jesus returns and, and brings us the new heavens and new earth, we will have that total freedom. For now, we're, we're freedom fighters through the gospel, through Jesus. So grant us, Father, just that hopefulness in him to be gospel people in, in a good news people. Gospel is good news in a world that's full of bad news and hard news. We ask these things, Father, in the great name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.